0: This is Creek with At the Table Podcast. Here at At the Table Podcast, our goal is to break down biblical topics, make scripture easy to understand, and to glorify God in His Word. We pray this content edifies, challenges, and blesses you. So without further ado, Sit back and join us at the table.
1: Good day and welcome to another episode of At The Table Podcast. Welcome as always. This is your host Trey with my two co-hosts John and Creek. How's it going guys? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, it's been
2: good been awesome. <laughs> Why are you always that guy? Dude, you know, it's, it's because me and my wife watch, like, Pixar movies a lot. So, I, you know, mm. this stuff just fills my head. And Well, I appreciate how happy he is. All yeah, time. this feels like a good place to employ it. You just bring joy. Yeah. If not here, then where? Right. What better? No time like the present. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's, that's all there is to it. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> no, nah, it's been good, man. Been a good week so far. Uh Course it's just started, so there's not not much that can go wrong in such a short period of time. I don't know.
0: It feels like it's been <laughs> a long one already. Don't say that,
1: dude. Well for <laughs> for everybody
2: that's not in the oil field. Man. It's okay. Yeah.
0: What about you, Creek? It's been good, dude. Work's been solid. Baby's doing good. So wife's wife's doing a good job, man. I'm proud of her. I I had to hold the baby for a little bit today and he like just was fussy today, and I like genuinely thought like this is hard, man. Let this is ha-
2: just so difficult. Let me ask you this: in a seven-day time frame, if you're to average it out, how many times do you get poop and or Peter puked? On? Oh my lord! I definitely get a lot of that. Like
0: <laughs> when I'm home, I am the primary diaper changer, which is fine. I'm not home a lot. Like as far as her, as uh, you know. So it's like She's a drum strike more, but, is what you're saying. You get but dude, I've been like dude, like before rich. church on Sunday, dude, <laughs> peed on, puked on. It was just I mean, it's just you know, it's just normal, I guess. But
1: Well, now that we're we're past the, the bathroom talk, um don't act like you're
2: a <laughs> for I'm real, trying to put dude. on a good front for you, our esteemed guests. Do you hear this guy? He's like on his lofty pedestal looking down <laughs> on the commoners over dude, here. Dude, I've got five kids, okay? <laughs> I
1: know more about all of those bodily functions than any of you. So. Right. right. Well, um... Speaking of, of guests, what we have at the table here today for our audience is we, we have a, a guest interview. Um, some of our favorite times, some of the favorite things that we like to do is uh, have these guests on. We always try to bring good guests, and uh, today we have one in particular that's pretty special. Um, he's a very accomplished author. Uh, I've read a ton of his novels. Um, really, really enjoy him. Brian Gadawa. If you would, would you please just introduce us to, to introduce yourself to our audience and just uh, kind of tell us who you are and what you're about?
3: Sure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, <clears throat> I am an author who's um, written best-selling uh, novels about the Bible, and I have a more recent novel "Out," which is a, a thriller. But I have a background in Hollywood screenwriting as a Hollywood screenwriter, and um, you know, I started many years ago in Hollywood. And I wrote the movie "To End All Wars," which stars Kiefer Sutherland. That's about um, quite a while ago, but uh, it's still one of my favorite um, movies of Kiefer's actually acting, you know. And uh, and it's also my personal favorite project that I've done when I, you know, being in Hollywood and such. But over the years, I. Um, you know, as I pursued, I lived in LA and and as I pursued that, uh, I, you know, I, I got to the point where I just, you know, writing screenplays is a fun living, can be very exciting and you can make some money, but there's a lot of, there's only a few people at the top and there's a big bunch of people at the bottom who are skilled and good, but the pot is not very good, and so um, it's very. It can be very difficult to make a living. Well, I was doing okay, and um, but then I had a few bad, a couple bad years where it was really bad, and I just realized, you know, I wanted to, you know, expand my horizons with my writing. What else could I do? And I realized I could do a novel, but partly what happened at the same time was I come up with a screenplay of a a movie that I thought, well, this will be unique. No one's done this yet. And it combines what Hollywood loves, you know, big special effects, ancient world, supernatural, right? But also, it's a Bible story that Christians would love. It's a perfect combo, right? And I wrote this script, and it was called Noah Primeval. And it was about Noah, of course. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little guy in Hollywood, so I was going around trying to get interest in it. And then I discovered Darren Aronofsky was making his movie. And I realized, okay, my movie is going to get made. So, you know how can i get the story out and that's when i realized you know what write it as a novel and this is when kindle was just starting to explode mm-hmm. and i wrote my first novel noah primeval that was basically based off of that screenplay and it just exploded and it just sold so well that it kind of launched my novel writing career as well so i was doing you know both for you know movies and and novels for the last 13 years and, um, but it really ex- it exploded and it opened up this whole theological thread that that I had been studying in the Bible, rooted in the divine counsel um and the watchers and the nephilim, the kind of weird, strange things in the Bible that that a lot of times we don't get very good answers because I think quite frankly, a lot of Christians are afraid of addressing them <laughs> um and they're a little bit too supernatural for them, et cetera but uh you know I I was drawn to it, and I discovered the work of Michael Heiser. Mm-hmm. And you know, he his uh, you know strong, solid, scholarly work helped open my eyes, like Elisha's servant. And I began to see that supernatural realm that's in the scriptures in the Old Testament. You know, of course, we've all believed in demons and angels, right? But right. but I mean, it just opened it up in a way I had not seen before, and it was a theological thread that is rooted in the Messiah, the messianic seed. And um, and the war against that Messianic seed throughout Israel's history, that was something I really hadn't—it it sort of like opened up the stories, and I saw the stories afresh, whether it's David's story or Abraham or what have you. And so I started writing more and more of these Bible stories. So the next one was called Enoch, Primordial. And then— um, Ultimately, I had David and Abraham and, and yeah. Jesus. So I, I ended, up, ended up being eight novels. And then it expanded to some additional novels called Chronicles of the Watchers. So the, the first series was called Chronicles of the Nephilim. And then the next series was Chronicles of the Watchers. And it was kind of like stories that I didn't get to in Chronicles of the Nephilim. So, like, mm-hmm. I'll write a Moses story and a Jezebel story that I didn't get in the first series. So, those could be integrated. And then ultimately, um, I have this um, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which is. Uh, I call it an origin story of the book of revelation you know a lot of b- novels on revelation are all about how it all how how the world ends right well my pitch is now you can read about how it all began when John was writing the book of revelation under nero and the persecution of christians in that first century just an amazing thing and how christians may have understood that book of revelation in their own time period and so those you know, those have just exploded and become um, amazing. I'm just amazed at how well they did, because quite frankly, I thought I was going to be rejected by cr- many Christians because, um, you know, for blasphemy or for playing with the word of God. And some there are some who do claim that usually they are the extreme far, fringy, extreme nuts. But, you know, most I was I've been surprised to discover that most Christians get it. And those who can appreciate the imagination and know what I'm doing, then they realize, yeah, I'm writing fictional stories. I'm staying true to the Bible, but I'm also trying to fill in between what we don't. You know, we we know what we we know what we know, but there's a lot that we don't know that's not in the Bible. You know, like what happened in Moses' time period. But from when he was forty to when he was eighty, you know, they just there's a lot of jumps in the Bible, right? So I, I sort of expand those with some fiction, but I make I make it fiction that is consistent with the Bible, and that's always been my goal. But I'm also showing the spiritual realm in, in you know in a way that's obviously speculative because the Bible doesn't reveal a lot about it, but it says it's there. So if you're going to deal with that spiritual realm by nature, you know, you're going to be speculating to a certain degree. Mm. But I, you know, my goal is is to be true to the to the Bible theologically. So I, th- I see these as theological novels almost, rather than, you know, yeah, this is exactly the way it happened. You know, I mean, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who who can say, right? Right.
1: I, and, I, can I just of, say, I would have much rather watched your noah movie than the one that came out oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the rock watchers yeah. walking around you know, yeah. The, the rock monsters
3: yeah it was really <laughs> Noah trying trash.
1: to kill his son, yeah. grandson or, you know absolutely yeah trash.
3: god it, is the bad guy i mean come on so um yeah and as a matter of fact that's sometimes odd pitches it. like this this novel is Noah primeval is not like the noah movie <laughs> yeah,
1: dude, that's a that's a great yeah. way to start um you know it's
3: interesting too because i actually had got a hold of the script for noah before it was, it came out as a movie because I was in Hollywood and I had connections, and uh, that person never gave me another script again because what I did was I went and analyzed the script. I didn't release the script, but I did analyze it and did a critique of it because right away it was very clear that it was a parable of environmentalism, earth worship, uh, um, of environmentalism. So it was using the Bible as a as a sort of manipulated story to tell his own. He's, you know, Darren Aronofsky is an atheist. So he right. just uses it as a metaphor for his worship of the earth. Wow. And um, sure enough, it, it ended up being exactly that as well. Um, along with those bad theology moments, like, you know, God is the bad guy and Mo- or Noah ends up being more compassionate than God, you know, that kind of ridiculous stuff. But um, so I had written it and it went, and it went viral and uh, um, through, I think, through Breitbart. And uh, so it was really kind of like, Ooh, you know, got got a lot going at that time. But you know, I, I I used to write a lot about also my analysis of movies because I've always had a love of philosophy and apologetics, and I've always loved you know trying to uh, understand the nature of storytelling and worldviews um, so much so that I also wrote a book um, in the beginning of my writing career called Hollywood Worldviews, where I tried to help Christians mostly, but you know people who respect the Bible how to help them understand uh, how the nature of storytelling works in movies and series so that they can watch intelligently and discern and, mm. and sort of address both extremes of either you throw the baby out with the bathwater or oh, there's sex and violence. So it's all bad. Or, you know, well, Hey, you know, it's just entertainment. So what, what's the big deal? No. Movies, TV series, uh, all art <laughs> embodies a worldview and is yeah. seeking to communicate to you uh, a way of seeing the world that that they think that the storyteller thinks you should be seeing the world. And that includes moral values, et cetera. So that was something that I did. Of course, that yeah, that that's that even though the book's selling really well, a lot more people now have come out and have done the same thing, and that's all right. good. and And I don't think it's much of a problem as it was twenty years ago, right. um, because I do think Christians are more intelligent in the way they watch. But I still think there's room for people, you know, because I even learned from other people when they say, oh, here's what I saw in that movie. I'm like, oh, I didn't catch that, you know. So it's always helpful for us to have that the dialogue, which I think is valuable, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, so that those, uh, those novels became um, so successful now, uh, best-selling, you know, dominating the Bible fiction category on Amazon. And I say that because it was kind of humorous. I... So, like I said, I, I thought that Christians would reject it because, you know, they're playing with the Word of God, you know, even though I tried to, you know, I, I let my imagination um, go, but within this sacred limits of God's Word, I sought to honor Him with that, my imagination, right? And I kind of follow that Tolkien-Lewis sort of mm, mindset. You yeah, know?
2: you know, I was going to say, I'm sorry to jump in, but earlier when you were talking about just the way that you use um imagery and, and you know, or the way that movies incorporate imagery to paint like a theological picture, the way that um you had wrote some of your novels, some of the first things that came up was like, Yeah, that was kind of like C. S. Lewis's take. You know, he's writing mm-hmm. chronicles of Narnia in such a way that if if you're remotely familiar with the Bible at all, in particular your New Testament, you see Aslan and you know immediately who he is. You know, <clears> subconsciously <throat> he just captivates yeah. yeah
3: you don't have to
2: right yeah yeah and ultimately even if you don't know any of of the scripture you come away with you know this this sense of good conquering evil and and of course if you do know the scripture then you know it's like an onion right there's a lot of layers but that's the first thing that kind of came to mind you know if i can say that it's just that you're like a you're like a modern day c.s lewis
3: in that way well thank you i appreciate that i'm i hope i would be a better storyteller than him though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he was better with theology i was i'm i was more of a tolkien fan with with, with the novels you know right like i right. agreed with tolkien that c.s lewis wasn't as good of a storyteller as he was an apologist and stuff but yes. um you know whom i speak i mean obviously he's sold millions with his narnia but but he just wasn't uh, he wasn't as good as tolkien yeah. let's yeah. put it that way um and um yeah so so as a matter of fact i think that part of that package of storytelling You know boy especially lewis and tolkien they they um you know they really drew from a lot of norse mythology in fact narnia had all these you know centaurs and pagan um you know uh, satyrs and stuff like that there were pagan creatures in narnia but what was so cool about was how his point was aslan is the is lord over all those you know what i mean yeah. and and no matter how they've been distorted or twisted for pagan usage ultimately god is the god overall imagination and that's how i operate in my storytelling and that's how i operate with my biblical storytelling where i would not i'm not afraid to incorporate some of these um pagan gods and and things but as demonic entities of course right. but nevertheless you know having these sort of spiritual reality to the pagan worldview, because it wasn't just like, you know, useless rocks and idols without any reality to it. There was a spiritual in the yeah. Bible for sure. And I'm mean, even, even today you could argue, right? But, but certainly in the Bible, um, you know, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32, these like, when they, when they were, when the Israelites worshiped the gods of Canaan, he said, they worshiped demons Shadeen, yeah. as, go- as gods and the gods that they did not know. And so he talked about this spiritual demonic reality behind the pagan gods. And so interestingly, what a part of the premise of my chronicle series, all of them, which was, you know, it's a little bit speculative, but it's kind of, it's rooted like I say in a theological truth of the Bible and that's this that What if the pagans of the ancient world—that we hear about the pagan gods—you know, whether it's um, Zeus in Greece or you know Baal in Canaan or you know Horus in Egypt, right? What if these—you know—we know know about how they worship them and and just we see their ancient artifacts and such. What if there was a spiritual reality behind some of that? Not necessarily all of it, but what if those pagan gods were rooted in real entities? that existed and um and had that spiritual truth to them now this isn't a polytheism that you know to understand it uh, biblically you have to understand that there's a biblical concept called the divine council or the watchers and you know these watchers are basically you know watchers over nations and the biblical concept is that that um Earthly powers and authorities, whether it's a king or a city or even a nation, they have earthly or they have spiritual authorities over them. And this shows up in a lot of situations you know a lot of biblical cases but you know one of the primary um, like texts yeah. that talks about that is Deuteronomy 32 8 through10 where it talks about how at Babel when God splits the the, the languages and creates the nations, he actually places them under the authority of the sons of God, but he keeps Israel or Jacob for himself. And these sons of God are these supernatural beings around God's council. And it talks about how they fall to earth, rebel against God, mate with human women and all this stuff. But at Babel, then God appoints, okay, if you're gonna keep worshiping these pagan deities, right? Tower of Babel or um, before the flood and then the Tower of Babel, you're going to keep worshiping, you won't worship me, then I'm going to place you under the authority of these these false gods that you worship, you know, and you will be under their authority, but Israel will be under mine. And that's where this sort of biblical concept goes throughout the whole Testament and even into the New Testament. And that's the exciting, interesting storyline that I bring to life speculating that, well, what if there's some spiritual reality to some of these right. gods and such? So that's, that's the premise that I used that I thought would also, by the way, since a lot of Christians have a sort of a modernist scientific mindset, anti-supernatural almost, they might, you know, that's polytheism or something like that. They wouldn't understand the true biblical context of it. Uh, but they didn't. They get it. And, and I've been really grateful for that because one of the things I did was at the end of each novel – like Michael Crichton used to do this, you know, he would put a, an appendix of the real science behind the science fiction that he wrote in the story. Well, I did the same thing with, but with my biblical research, because I just felt like, you know, Christians are going to be really freaked out by this, and yeah. if they can see how it's rooted in the Bible and in historical research, they would appreciate it more. And sure enough, they have. And that's kind of where I am t- t- today, and that's that's sort of my big package description of who I am and what I do and the kind of stories I write. Oh, one last thing I just wanted to throw out was, I was going down this path, but I I, I um, pulled back. So I was saying that my books are on the Bible fiction. Um, they, they dominate the top 10, uh, 20 of the Bible fiction categories on, on Amazon. And when I first started, all there was in those categories were novels written by women, for women, about women in the Bible. So it would be yeah. like the wife of... <laughs> Of of uh, whoever, wife of Noah, the wife of Abraham, the you know all the wives of David, you know it's just like and they're I'm sure they're great novels, but I was thinking like nobody's going to want to read these action epic, you know, Christian Game of Thrones things because women seem to be buying all the Bible novels, right? Lo and behold, a, a lot of them they are my dominant purchasers, so um, it's a, it's encouraging to see that that even Christian women can really have are, are, are interested in a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of storytelling, which encouraged me greatly as well.
1: That's something I actually wanted to, to talk to you about. So obviously, you know, we love your novels, but I wanted to ask you like with kind of the equivalent in the film industry right now would be like um, the series, um, which is crowdfunded, I believe, but like The Chosen, right? And yeah. I, you see a ton of criticism. I mean, a ton of criticism because yeah. the same thing I'm sure that you've heard about your novels is, oh, well, he's not being tr- 100% true to the biblical story. How should we as as consumers of this type of stuff and Christians who want to honor God and who want to be faithful, how should we look at things like that? And how do you look at that?
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a there's a lot to that issue. But, um, <laughs> you know, I I think that there's a lot of ignorance. Now, now there is a lot of ignorance and it, it's rooted in a misunderstanding of the nature of god's word and so um you know many christians have this they have a miss an unbiblical notion of what it means to be god's word it's it's kind of they they think god's word is kind of like the quran where god magically you know delivered it all yeah or 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 the prophets or the writers were writing and and god was magically moving their hands you know what i'm saying or he gave them a, a, a you know perfect knowledge of everything and that's not actually the biblical doctrine <laughs> um the biblical doctrine of inspiration is that it is god's word through man but it's through man and and so there's a human there's a strong human component to scripture that cannot be denied and christians are some christians are afraid of that right so so when when you say fiction and you like you're expanding on things like the gospels like the chosen may do not speaking to the actual theology of it at this point just saying the yeah. very notion of like you're expanding the story and giving you know characters backstory right you know cuz a lot of the disciples you know there's very little backstory we don't know maybe oh, peter's a fisherman right and 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 so the chosen fills out with with backstory that makes it consistent with what we do know which is very little right and um, that's one element that I think you know it, it goes deep, <laughs> um, but I do think it's fu- a fundamental misunderstanding of God's word itself that makes people react react to this fiction. As long as the fiction is is intended to be as consistent with what we do know in the Bible, you know, it's one way of helping to um, fill out uh, how shall we say it? Um, uh, give. Uh, give a fuller meaning to what we do know. And by the way, it's nothing different than what a pastor does in a sermon when he goes, when he retells the story, some whatever, maybe he's retelling the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, right? And he gives you all the background and he gives you all, you know, at that time how the Samaritans were separated from the Jews and and where it was located and all this stuff and and the background, he's doing the same thing. He's filling it out with Things that are speculative, we may not know for sure, but we have some knowledge. This is the way things were. But he then retells the story with that context. It's giving a, a fuller context. Um, so so that's what I... Now, like I say, I think many Christians do get that, and they do understand that. But the ones who don't, the ones who react, um, I think that's they have this magical... They have a magical view of God, like he does these magical... Not miraculous, but magical, <laughs> you know, where it's just like the the hand magically writes exactly what literally happened, even though the person doesn't even know what 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 happened, you know. So, um, you know, without getting too deep down the rabbit hole, there, that's one example of of what I think is a f- false understanding of of biblical fiction or Christian fiction. You know, the other one would be, you know, uh, and it's tied to it closely, in a lot of this. I hear this KJV only thing, you know, like it seems to be those people are the worst where it's just like, you know, um, if you don't use the KJV Bible, then it's all blasphemy, you know? And that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what to say to that. You know what I mean? Man, it's ridiculous, but, but I get a lot of that, by the way, I really do.
1: I figured you <laughs> would, because it's just, what it shows is a fundamental lack of teaching, I think, inside of a Christian you know, Most of these people don't even understand how their Bible came to be. They don't understand, you know, translation. They don't understand um, even transliteration and all of that. And it's something that I've come across. I mean, we're kind of a mixed bag here on this podcast when it comes to things like The Chosen. You know, I I tend to really like it, even though I understand what makes me comfortable with it is. Dallas comes out straight in the beginning and says, this is not a word-for-word telling of Scripture. This is creative yeah. license by a creator. I I am doing my best to honor God. I want people to see this and I want them to give glory to God. But this is not supposed to replace your Bible reading, your church service, any of that. And for me, that's that's kind of the difference maker when it comes to it. And it's, I like just like with your novels, it's one thing that I really enjoy. My wife just started Noah Primeval, by the way, so I'm, no. I'm excited for her to to, to walk through them too.
3: Cool, cool. Yeah, you know, I remember I, I saw just recently the, the the scene with the woman at the well from The Chosen. Now, I haven't watched the series myself. I've seen a few of the episodes. It's not exactly my thing personally, but I mean, he's doing a good job and, and all that. Um, but um, I haven't been as drawn into it, but I saw that that woman at the well scene and it was deeply moving and it it really typified it's just a way to help make alive what we already do know but it gives you a fresh uh, a fresh sort of um, reading, a fresh reading of the text that helps you to see it from a different perspective you haven't before. And by the way, now that gets us to the power, what the power of storytelling does is when you are telling a story and we are following the human characters as they're interacting with others, making their choices, right? Um, the power of that in terms of communicating truth transcends logic and reason. When I when I say that, I don't mean that it goes against it. I'm just saying that dramatically incarnating your story into the human experience touches our humanity in a way that reason cannot. So we are both rational reasoning creatures, which is helpful, and propositional truth. Um, And uh, and we are also imagination creatures, uh, create an image of God, right? And so um, the the storytelling and creativity connects to that that part of us that um, that experiences truth through the human the drama of human existence, and that's why I think storytelling is so powerful because it's sort of like incarnation, isn't it? You know we talk about the Word. Jesus is the Word, infinite, eternal God, and He is. But then when you t- but then when you see Him and read Him as the incarnation of the human on Earth, doesn't God's infinite it, doesn't that make God's infinite greatness? more relatable to us in a way that we can connect with. Just like he says, he's our brother and you know he's suffered as, as we have, yet without sin, but he's, he's experienced the suffering so he knows what it's like to be human. That, human, that incarnation um, in Christ that makes us connect to God closer is the same reason why story is an incarnation of ideas. When you have a story, you have people who have ideas about the world and how we should live, and they're in conflict with one another. And as they work through that conflict, and at the end of the story, you see whoever wins and their view is the best, you know, that kind of thing. Um, In a way, story is an embodiment of logical arguments into a human dramatic experience. And that's why I think it's so powerful um, uh, to to communicate theology through storytelling. (laughs) ¶¶
0: We hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, give us a rating, review, and send this podcast over to a friend. If you want to contact us, email us at at the mail at gmail.com. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, and any other podcasting platform. Ask us about merch, recommend topics, or interviews or just tell us what you think of the episode. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back into the show. So,
1: uh, kicking into the second half of this interview, I do want to talk about your, your newest project, um, a, a book that, that uh, you, you were able to send me, but I not not only got your, your copy, but I also uh, got it on um, Audible. And uh, I've listened to it. I work... Um, kind of by myself. So I have a lot of time to keep my mind busy while my hands are working. And uh, I think I, I think I finished it in two days. So (laughs) I I pretty much just uh, couldn't, couldn't turn it off. Um, It was, it was a really good book. Um, Just if you would kind of introduce us and uh, we we will play the trailers in this episode, but introduce us to your new book.
3: Yeah. So it's called cruel logic, the philosopher killer. It's the subtitle. And uh, it's, a, it's completely different from all my Bible supernatural novels in that it's like a, a modern day um, um, th- serial killer story or thriller mm. and like Silence of the Lambs, right? And so um, what it is is the premise of the story is that there's this brilliant philosopher who is a teacher at a college and he also happens to be a serial killer. And what he does is he captures university professors and he debates with them. And the topic of his debate is his moral right to kill them. So he'll get everyone from a evolutionary biologist to a queer theorist or what have you. And he'll put them in the chair. So literally (laughs) uh, both literally and uh, physically metaphorically, right? Um, Videotapes it. And he basically says, look, if what you say is true about reality, then give me one logically valid reason why I should not kill you and I will let you go. And he means it. He sincerely means it because of course, all the various worldviews that are out there. Um, well, I won't spoil it. Well, I guess, I guess I'll spoil it a little bit. They have a difficult time, um, proving their cases. And, uh, it turns out that the serial killer is, is not just doing it for fun or not just doing it to be proud. But he's also making an argument against the cop and psychiatrist uh, um, I'm sorry, the cop and the psychiatrist, forensic psychiatrist, who's trying to track him down. And um so that's that's the the uh thriller component that that originated the entire story. But, and I originally actually wrote it as a screenplay many years ago, tried wow. to get it made as a movie, and I could not. And you know that doesn't who knows why there's a thousand reasons why you can't get a movie made um and uh we know one I big one. O- <laughs>
1: what? we know one big one the the anti yeah. the anti woke yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the moment that you yeah. put a queer theorist in the chair there with the movie
3: <laughs> yeah 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 no exactly um so you know I've been trying to get it made for years and it actually did well as a as a screenplay I won awards and all this kind of stuff in fact I even made a short film based on one of the scenes in the in the movie of the debates right and you can find it online it's called cruel logic literally and um trying to sell the movie you know say hey look here's one what a scene might look like well anyway i couldn't get it made and i finally was able to find a break in my writing with my bible novels to finally uh, adapt it uh to a novel but here's the interesting thing um when i first wrote it the whole wokeness was not well known um at all. And so I've added a whole new element to the story that is a bigger context to what this is where this is occurring, which in, is in this woke University in California. It's a fictional one. and um, but I'm also telling the story of a evangelical Christian, a, a normal typical freshman who goes to college for for the first time and how he gets sucked up into the social justice movement in the school. and um, and it kind of deals with modern deconstruction that we hear of, you know, Christian deconstruction. You know, you go to college and you lose your faith. Of course, that's always been happening (laughs) from the beginning of of time, Uh, Christians going to college and lose their faith. But this notion of Christian deconstruction and and how there's a lot of ill-equipped Christians going to school and facing challenging skepticism against their faith, and they're not equipped because the modern evangelicalism is... It's Evan Jellyfish, you know, It's it's um, it doesn't really provide a strong foundation to address these issues. And I also wanted to show what's really going on in these universities. So as he gets sucked up into the movement, you know, he he goes to the, he gets a job at the DEI department, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? In the school, he falls in love with this um, black girl who's also a part of that package, but she's kind of cynical and she's using the system for her own benefit, right? And then he he, he, gets, he he goes to all the things at the school, like they have sex week. Oh. They have um, student protests that start to rise and create an autonomous zone. But everything that happens in the university is based on actual stuff that's happened at universities of the last 10 years that I know of. I did research. I even footnoted some of them in the novel, just A novel because, with footnotes. I, again, <laughs> people who say, come on, is this really happening in universities? I would think everybody would know by now, but still people are still ignorant and still don't believe yeah. that wokeness has completely captured the universities. So I footnoted it as well. And you can, you can check that stuff out, you know, look, look into it further. But I wanted to show that this so, what's the heart and soul of wokeness, right? Because you know the word's used a lot, and a lot of people don't even know what it means. But you know, it's basically that worldview of the the uh, rooted in Marxism, postmodernism that believes that there is no true uh, knowable objective reality, and so um, so therefore, all all social structures are merely structures of power intended to oppress uh, people of color and minorities, um, for white supremacy and the villain, uh, the ultimate oppressor is the white male heterosexual Christian, right? And then all the, the ultimate oppressed are all women, uh, uh, you know, uh, people of color and, and all minor, all minorities, right? And so it's this oppressed oppressor, um, uh, paradigm that's, uh, reductionistic, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also rooted in a racist hatred that seeks to um, ultimately inspire and incite violence against white people. And uh, that's where it's ultimately going and that's where the book sort of uh, takes you. But there's another component of it and that is that if you look at what's going on in the universities, they are against Western civilization. Modern, you know, America, culture is rooted in western civilization which is rooted in the bible right but also modern education used to be that way um it used to be rooted in western civilization now they're anti-western civilization this is where you hear the terms patriarchy fascist uh you know um patriarchy sex sexism homophobia and it's all claims about the bible ultimately and so they're they're in the university. They are attacking Western civilization, and they are also trying to get rid of God. And that's why the um, the the ultimate heart and soul of this leftist woke revolution is Antichrist. Mm. And I don't say that as end time stuff. I'm just saying it's literally what the Bible defines as Antichrist. It's against Christ, and its goal is to kill God. And so and to and to ultimately imprison as Christians and kill Christians and stuff. That's where it's going. And that's why we see the violence rising, right? They're using rhetoric like, you're all Nazis, you're white supremacists, you know, you're you uh you are oppressors, you Misogynous. are domestic terrorists. Those are terms that are dehumanizing and criminalizing to justify violence against us. And so that's the big package that ultimately sort of expresses the dominant theme of the novel, which is ideas have consequences. Mm. When you teach these things to students, it's no surprise that they grow up, go out, get jobs and bring this into the real world and capture all the institutions such that, that it's breeding the violence that we now see rising in our society, um, all in the name of justice, right? It's actually, injustice in the name of justice and so that's the you know that's the big picture idea that i'm dealing with but this notion of ideas have consequences is really runs deep because i think most non-christians many christians too but most non-christians just don't think through the implications of their beliefs right if you say morality is a social construct you know um Human rights are a fiction. You know, that's a new one, right? Yuval Noah Harari says that. But many professors believe that, you know, that uh, morality is a a social construction, right? Well, if you do argue that, it is logically consequent that people will behave as if morality is a made-up fiction. So they'll do whatever they want because there is no morality that they're accountable to right now they don't do that in the beginning right but they you know they they try to justify little by little incrementally but ultimately ideas people become more consistent with ideas and if you teach students that there is no morality and they're animals they're just evolved animals then it's no surprise they're going to act like animals without morality these are the kind of things that that i'm wrestling with in in the story
1: i think that it's kind of funny um the 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 idea of inclusion or that there is no there is no established morality there is no everything's relative well that works until you have someone like a Christian who will make a claim that no there is one who has established truth it isn't relative it yeah. isn't subjective to you well then those people automatically are on the outside of that and so yeah. suddenly your inclusivity becomes exclusive. In a world yeah. where nobody makes objective claims, fine, it works. You know, um, and I don't know if you've heard of him. Have you heard of the, uh, he's a YouTube streamer, really big. His name is Destiny.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I just heard him debate Ben Shapiro.
1: Yeah. One of the better ones, I will say. Um, yeah. That's uh, a good one. Uh, I, I, When I watch him, I often, especially after reading your book, I picture him in the chair. And he has all of these great arguments, all these ideas, and all of these wonderful things. But I often wonder if I have the gun to your head, how does that play out? If I have yeah. you, uh, where you cannot get away, there's no squirming, you cannot argue me. How how does how does that philosophy play out to its end? Does your mind
3: well, change? Oh, go, uh, go ahead.
1: I, that's my question. That would be my yeah. question to him. Like, does your mind change whenever you're the one on the chopping block? Whenever I have the gun to your head and I say, I want to kill you, why can't I? Why should you live? Can you explain that? Or is so, is truth suddenly not subjective? Is it suddenly objective? I, I've exactly. often wondered that.
3: Now, you know, I've had these kind of debates, and it's amazing how atheists, they ju- they think, but they don't think about their thinking. They just don't think about the fact that all the arguments you're making all assume Presuppositions or foundational tr- uh, truths about reality that your atheism does not comport with, so, uh, so it's the struggle as we're trying to argue them to show them, to, to see this, but that's why this cruel logic is the most powerful uh expression of the moral argument for the existence of god which is without god there is nothing there is no right and wrong so you have no moral authority right well we can argue that abstractly and state propositional statements like we just did but when you put that into a story where a serial killer is actually placing someone's life on the line then you you i think it's just more powerful in fact the origin of that story i have to admit was not my myself it was in a uh, another a Christian apologist that I followed years ago, that he was back in the seventies. but I was listening to his stuff in the eighties and nineties, but he was back in the seventies. His name was, um, um, Walter Martin. Mm. And he, he was a rascal of a guy. I loved him. He had a good sense of humor. But he was describing on the show how he was frustrated with, it, with this atheist because he's trying to tell them, look, you know, you don't have a foundation for morality. And the guy goes, what do you mean? I have, I have a morality. I have a, I have a basis, a belief in morality. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. You don't have a foundation for it. And he got so frustrated that the atheist couldn't think about his thinking that he finally said, OK, look, it's 1940s. I'm a German Nazi with a gun pointed at you and you're a Jew. Give me one reason why I shouldn't kill you. And that's what fi- where the guy finally began to, to get what he was making. And of course, obviously, that's, I never forgot that because I kept that in my mind all these years. And I think that the power of it, is, it lies in the fact that it's a human dramatic expression of a moral argument.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Which is why I believe that Dostoevsky's argument in The Brothers Karamazov between Ivan and Alyosha um that's where you hear about you know if there's no god all is permissible right that was the classic well i think his book his little i mean that's why all philosophers refer to it his human dramatic story argument about the moral argument for existence of god and for how the the uh the death of christ fix uh you know fits into that is 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 the best argument in, in philosophy uh, nice. for the ar- moral argument for God because atheists really think they got a silver barrel when they t- when they come to Christians to say, well, you know, if God's so loving, well, explain all this evil in the world, you know? Or it's like, well, you know, does God call something evil because it's evil, which means it's arbitrary or it's above him? Or does he just arbitrary call things to evil? They make these arguments that they think us over the barrel but they really don't and it's like the easiest things to answer in some ways but you know ultimately the problem is is that the christian um can't give the answer because god doesn't reveal why he allows the evil and the suffering mm. that he does mm. and that's we have to by faith we trust that god yeah. who who is sovereign will bring all justice to rights as he tells us and so it's a faith statement. So, oh, it's just faith. Yes, you know, what? but the problem is, is, but you, the atheist, you're the one who has the real problem, not the Christian, because we at least have a foundation for right and wrong. We don't know why God's allowing the evil, but he, he, ha, he, uh, he has a morally sufficient reason for it because he's the creator, the infinite creator. Right. But as, but you as an atheist, you are the real one with the problem, because if there is no God, then there is no evil, good and evil. There's only personal subjective feelings. And you can't call anything evil. You can't call genocide evil. You can't call mass rape evil because it's not evil. It's not objectively bad regardless of what people subjectively feel. And that there's no real human worldview that can justify a belief in moral right and wrong. Here's the key. All human philosophies, all human ethical systems reduce to one thing, power. And that's where the postmodernist is really technically right, in that the postmodern worldview is there's no God, therefore all human structures are are rationalizations of prejudice and power. And if there is no God, they would absolutely be right. But of course, there is a God, and therefore they are the evil ones constructing their false oh, woo, worldview right. to justify their Let's power. Yeah.
2: That's that's something that just kind of stuck out. You know, I I know for a lot of people, images are powerful, and that's why movies can do um, so much. You know, with with so little, with just such a little concept, a little message. But for books, I think even more so. You know, one of the things that comes to mind, especially like and you talk about your earlier novels a lot of people maybe don't know about them but cs lewis actually has a little space trilogy um that he wrote yeah. that's super good um but it, what what comes to mind is there's something about reading a book that engages that imagination that you're talking about and and you you sort of you you get um uh, invested that's that's the yeah. word you get invested in this you know in this story and there's something about like thinking not only that ideas have consequences, but that, and in fact, this book, death will introduce you to your set of consequences and both be <laughs> your consequence at the same time. That yeah. Especially in, in such a cliffhanger way that, that you, that you leave that. I mean, it, it's painful for the reader. Cause you're like, Oh, there's so many unanswered questions about this guy or this guy and what happens. But when you leave it like that, it, what it does is it leaves you with that, almost like a parable intended message. Now ponder this: yeah. you know, yeah. if if you, yeah. if your worldview was in the chair, because you'll probably find yourself tethered to one or two or three of these ideals, you know, and and if your you know champion philosopher was a representative of you, even if he was sitting in that chair in your stead, even he couldn't defend your life, you know. Yeah. like you said that when you remove God, in your anger, ironically, you remove the only thing morally that protects your wicked life <laughs> from being, yeah. you know, from being kept alive, you know, which is yeah. funny in and of itself really to kind of think about. Yeah. You know,
3: if people are worried or listening to this and people might think, you know, well first of all, one of the reasons why I another one of the reasons why I write it is I've always loved philosophy and apologetics, but I recognize many people don't some for some it's just too intellectual it's too deep sometimes philosophy gets too deep for me too you know so i get that but i still love it and i do think it's all of our social realities originate in philosophy and they trickle down you know to culture so i believe it's very relevant even if people don't think it's relevant right but my goal is like okay but how can i make it interesting to people because you know you can't keep you got to keep their attention right and so that's where the the idea I think is so brilliant because it, 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 it takes that um, a little bit of philosophy. doesn't, you know, I don't do everything, but I take a little bit of philosophy and mix it with a great thriller, you know, a serial killer, like a Hannibal Lecter. Right. And um, and that helps them to be able to go a little bit deeper and, and to to think about something that they may not normally be as interested in. Um, But another component of good storytelling is you don't, you have to portray the villain or the opposing views, whatever they are, in any story. You have to sh- you have to show every character at their best, yeah. Which means yeah. you don't demonize, you don't make all the all the atheists bad people and all the Christians good people. You know, you don't do that. Those are the those are the things that that cause a lot of Christian art to suffer. Um, in fact, my stories, I have everybody has sins and secrets even the Christians and the Christians have sins that some churches aren't willing to, to wrestle with or, or talk about in the open, like masturbation. So these are real, real issues in the Christian life. Right. And I, I bring all those out and I wrestle with those and I don't make every unbeliever, uh, an idiot or something. And right. the people who are making their arguments, I don't, I straw, I don't straw man them. I steel man them. I try to make the best, you know, most typical argument that people make yeah, yeah. um for these beliefs because you know who wants to who wants to see something that's that who wants to see something that's just been demonized no no you know you have to show all opposing characters at their best not at their worst because that's what makes it not only more interesting but it rings true to the reader even if the reader doesn't agree with you know the storyteller necessarily they're going to have to come face to face with well, he's you know he, he's he's depicting the, the the arguments accurately. I may disagree with him, but he is depicting them accurately. You know and that's my goal in, in the storytelling is is that very that very thing.
2: Well, I feel that it kind of just invites the reader, you know, because it's it's showing the proverbial snake in the garden, right? For our contemporary time, what we realize is an infiltrator that's ultimately designed by Satan to, you know, like you said, engineer. Um, society and and manipulate them in a way that is hostile to God's people Um, that are that are ironically on a rescue mission to save them funny enough but one of the things that again is just so brilliant to me is that it causes the reader it invites them it doesn't just tell them who the bad guy is but you're you're almost you know invited to look through the telescope right and you're you're spying out the garden you're like okay you know in in this big novel you know there's always the plots always introduced in any story at the beginning and rising and falling action you hit a climax and ultimately there's a resolution and it and it causes you to ask those questions what what is resolved what was the villain and you have to deeply think on those things and and of course you you end up finding well the the villain kind of seemed to be the philosophy killer in our way cuz he's killing people but what has caused their death ultimately was exactly was the faultiness of the, of their reality their misconception yeah. of reality it was the belief system that killed them and ironically you know I, i'm in, in, intended i'm sure from your standpoint that will be your reality both physically and spiritually one day every person will ultimately you know meet the the maker of all things yeah. and you'll yeah. be forced to reconcile you know everybody will be weighed in the balances and and it's, I don't know. It's just such a brilliant way to do things. I love it because I, I'm a book guy. I'm I'm a nerd at heart, to be honest. I really am. Um, but it just a a wonderful work. I just thought that was so cool. Because like you said that that is an area of suffering. You know, everybody wants to 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 paint the opposing side to be so silly and so stupid. Mm. You you really lose the credibility to reason with that side because they can't. Get past the obvious insults that you're hurling at them. It makes it right. impossible to win somebody when you start out the conversation by saying, "Hey, I think you're an idiot, but I want to talk to you anyway." You know what I mean? <laughs> Fair enough. It's, yeah. it's just not not a good way to go about apologetics work. You know, which is why social media
3: is such a failure when it comes to this stuff. You know, amen. Just the 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 hostility and venom that on all sides, truly, truly, uh, it's it. Sometimes it seems hopeless to me that it's just going to it's just growing and increasing in hostility towards an explosion yeah. um and you know and i i don't really participate in too much dialogue on social media because of that but even just in trying to promote um my books and stuff the reactions i get i see from people are just abominably ignorant mm. they don't even read the ad like some of them they and by the way christians and non-christians have both like just it's like you didn't read the ad you just responded to like you maybe you read three or four words and you and you reacted with your hate yeah. you know and you wrote some stupid statement down that has nothing to do <laughs> with it you know and i just you, think you pulled on wow. a push door
2: and didn't even read the label yeah
3: yeah and got it's mad just at the so sad but that's also why I don't really i don't really interact with people like that um, because i know that they're not they're not rational. They're not thinking. They're not even open to anything. Oh, yeah. But there are. But when I see someone who does respond with an honest question, where it just you you don't get that sense of hostility, it's just really like, well, how can you say this because of this or that or that? You know. Then I'll interact a little bit with them. Um, but it's just the the animosity, which is like you know, seventy five percent of the stuff on on there is just uh, yeah. irrational hate words. You know, <laughs> and it's so sad to me.
1: You know, I would uh, just. Having read the novel, some of the characters, the ones that end up in the chair, right? Whenever I think about them, and I think of like the YouTuber that we talked about, Destiny, kind of in summation um, for this episode, what it does is it makes me realize that there's some people that no matter what they look at, they'll never see God. And there's those of us who have seen his face, you know, metaphorically or whatever, metaphysically, that no matter, we look at the same evidence and all we can see is God. You know, all yeah. we could see is objective truth. Whenever I see all of those things that you, that you find, point you towards atheism, it points me towards God, and it's it's just amazing to me because the sad part is, is you have to steal from Him to even have your your opinion, yes. to even have your point of view. You have to steal something that He gave you to worship Him with, and like yeah. John said, you know, ultimately they're
2: gonna find out. Yeah, it's it's sad because like you can't even rebel against God without His help, right? You've got to yeah, use, exactly. You've got to use His oxygen. You know, you've got you've got to do it in His world with the body He made for you. You know, to the people yeah. He made for Himself. You know, you everything you do is borrowed, and and I, sometimes you know it's kind of borrowed funny. capital, right? Yeah, and you just think about that old joke, right, with that guy that. Um, atheist that says, you know, I, I, God, I don't need you. You know, I'll go build my, I'll go build my own spot. So he gets a bucket full of dirt, and God says, Go get your own dirt. You, you know, yeah, use your own dirt. Yeah, you can't use mine. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you get, know,
3: uh, the Christian apologist Cornelius Van Til would often say, you know, the 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 sinner is is, is a person that's like a child sitting on the lap of of his father slapping his face, you know, he just doesn't even realize that he's sawing off the branch that he's sitting on, you know? So
2: that's so crazy to, to like, think from God's perspective. And I mean, ultimately, even in that testifies to his goodness, how patient he is with, with people. I cannot imagine what it would be like to make all of this and then have it, have the audacity to say, Hey, are are you real? I don't think you're real. And I don't like the way you do things <laughs> you know it's it's like man, sitting in that chair, of course, we could never know what it would be like but man thank God yeah. for his graciousness, man and yeah. thank God that he's using you to do what you do it 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 has such a such a practical um implication for believers, but I think is is a powerful evangelistic tool for for nonbelievers to read and we'll see. If we'll they're see. introspective, hope, right? That's the yeah. that's the whole key. Is the Holy Spirit gonna guide them into introspection, and are they gonna ask questions? You know. Um, yeah. Well, I guess, um,
0: Brian, just maybe give us like a little like plug your stuff. Tell us where we can get your books, and sure. you know how do we find? Well, you? all my
3: all my books are exclusively at Amazon, in but they're all in paperback, Kindle. And audiobook as well as hardcover. Most of them are in hardcover. Um, it's all exclusively at Amazon. But if you are <coughs> interested in, <coughs> excuse me, if you are interested in, you know, just looking more into me or whatever, my website, Gadawa.com, has everything there and all the books and a bunch of cool other cool articles and, you know, artwork connected to all the novels and stuff like that. So, um, Gadawa.com, G O D A W A.com.
0: Awesome. Yeah. All righty.
1: Well, man, thank you so much for um, allowing us to interview you. I don't know why suddenly on, guys. my microphone is actually working right, but that's incredibly yeah. annoying at the very end. Um, uh, that's so frustrating. Better late than never. Yeah. yeah. But um, like I said, thanks for the time. Um, we we greatly appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can send some more um, readers your way because uh, we really believe in the, in the work that you've done. So
3: cool. Till next time.
1: All right, Well, uh, You heard it here first, folks. He said until next time. That means we have a repeat guest. Hey, hey, hey. Um, uh, Thank you. But from uh, all of us here at At The Table Podcast, this is signing off. Godspeed.
2: Later.
3: This is Dr. Kevin
1: O'Connor,
0: and you're listening to At the Table Podcast. This is Dylan from Jamaica, and you're listening to At the Table Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Kent Hovind of Dinosaur Adventureland, and with the At the Table Podcast.
3: Hey, this is Savannah Donaldson and you're listening to At the Table Podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of At the Table Podcast. We hope it blessed you, and we hope it taught you something. Until next time, thank you so much, and God bless.